Hi everyone, this is David from Passion to Excellence. Today in this podcast, I want to talk about why the best of the best in sports are the best of the best. It's interesting how little seems to be known among professionals in sports about the expert performance framework, deliberate practice and mentor representations from Anders Ericsson. When you listen to the interviews of athletes and coaches or the opinions of experts and the media, you can frequently hear them talking about natural talent and how important it is to become the best. There's one problem though. If we look at the issue from a scientific perspective, till this date, science has not found any evidence that something like talent actually exists. Countless studies have tried to investigate the issue, researchers have tried to analyze and uncover the variables that define talent, but with no success. The conclusion that most of these studies have reached is that it is probably better to invest the time into developing talent instead of finding it. And there are two reasons why science has not found anything more concrete about talent yet. One, we are not advanced enough in the research methodology and our understanding of certain variables of human ability that can define talent and inform us under which condition it happens. So with this interpretation, talent remains this mystical gift that only the chosen among us have and there's nothing you can do about it. You either have talent or you don't. And we think that we have the evidence as well, right? If we look at sports, for example, and the careers of the greatest athletes, we are in awe of what Stephen Curry, Kobe Bryant, or Tom Brady, and so many others have achieved or are capable of. Surely it must have something to do with their natural talent that made these individuals so special. But there's a second reason why science has not found anything more concrete about talent yet. Because it doesn't exist. Well, how can we explain that Stephen Curry was not recruited by a major college and picked only at number seven in the 2009 NBA draft and has become one of the best offensive weapons in the NBA? Or Kobe Bryant, who was on the 13th pick in the 1996 NBA draft and went on to become one of the most dominating players basketball has ever seen? Or even more crazy, look at Tom Brady, who was the 199th pick in the sixth round of the 2000 NFL draft. And now, 21 years and seven Super Bowl championships later, he's considered one of the greatest who has ever played the game of football. And there are so many other examples. If it was talent or natural ability that made these athletes achieve greatness, would we not have seen it much sooner? None of them would have been so overlooked at the beginning of their careers, right? But why do we want to believe that some of us are more special than others and born with extraordinary skills and aptitudes? It actually doesn't matter. Instead of arguing for or against natural talent, I want to look at what we actually know at this point about the performance of experts. A lot of research has been done about expert performance in music, medicine, chess, sports and some other fields. I want to look at what we know from the science, what the best performers among the experts do differently than the rest of their peers that allows them to perform at a level that no one else seems to be able to reach. And this is where the expert performance framework comes into play. And if we reevaluate the careers of the great athletes, musicians, surgeons or chess players with an understanding of this framework, we can see that things are not as they seem. 
And because Wimbledon is currently in progress, the expert performance framework also explains why Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal or Novak Djokovic, if 100% physically fit, are still impossible to beat by anyone else but each other. But more on this later. The expert performance framework originates from the research by Professor Anders Ericsson and his colleagues. He looked closer into the makeup of high-performing individuals in the areas of music, chess and memorization. He wanted to find out which factors make someone perform at the highest level. He wanted to know why the best of the best are the best of the best. And the common belief back in the 1970s was, and still is today, that talent plays a major role in how much someone can achieve. It is important to know that Ericsson researched expert performance in terms of exceptional individuals whose performance in sports, the arts and science is vastly superior to that of the rest of the population. So he did not investigate how a beginner turns into an expert. He was interested why the best performers of the expert performers were better than their peers. So he did research into this topic and he saw a pattern emerging, which was that the time the best chess players, musicians, memorization experts or athletes spent correlated with their level of expertise and skill. That means that the ones who were at the top of their discipline had spent more hours practicing than the ones who were not. And based on the results of various research studies, Ericsson and his colleagues saw that the best performers among the experts in the field had spent somewhere between 8,000 and 25,000 hours of practice before they were able to reach a high level of excellence. But instead of drawing a premature conclusion, Ericsson kept his eyes on the ball and looked more thoroughly into it. And he discovered something amazing that was the actual breakthrough of his research, but which only very few seem to have really understood. After almost two decades of research, he actually found the reason why the top performers amongst the expert performers were better than their peers. It wasn't the time alone that these expert performers spent on practicing their skills that gave them an advantage. It was the way in which they practiced. Ericsson referred to this special form of practice that led some expert performers to become the best in their field as deliberate practice. And before I go into detail why deliberate practice gave these best of the best an advantage, let's briefly look into what deliberate practice actually is. So deliberate practice is a highly structured form of practice with the explicit goal to improve performance and it requires three things. Number one, an expert teacher or coach who can design practice activities and give explicit instruction to the student or coachee on how to improve. An expert teacher or coach who can organize the sequence of appropriate training tasks and monitor improvement one-to-one -one and also decides when to proceed with a more challenging task. And number three, a practice activity with explicit goals, immediate feedback and repetition that is known to lead to better performance. What was also interesting is that it didn't matter if Ericsson looked at the performance of musicians, chess players or memorization experts. Deliberate practice for any of these expert performers in different fields worked exactly the same way. So the reason why the best of the best became the best of the best was that they engaged in deliberate practice more than their peers. 
So they had an expert teacher who worked with them on a one-to-one -one basis, knew how to achieve a goal that they wanted to reach, taught them the individual steps so they could acquire a very complex skill or task step-by-step, -step, set clear goals, challenged and pushed them, gave them immediate feedback on what they were doing and knew the right time when they had mastered one step of the process and provided them with the next step. And then the best of the best practiced on their own what their teacher had taught them until they became proficient at it and then they moved on to something more difficult under the guidance of an expert teacher. So deliberate practice means never standing still and always pushing yourself to refine your skills. Ericsson found that the best of the best were these individuals that had the highest motivation to become better and the ones who had the intention, the perseverance and the will to put the necessary work and effort into it. Ericsson also found that there's no limit to an individual's potential. With deliberate practice, musicians, memorization experts or chess players could always raise the bar a bit higher than before and were able to perfect their already perfect skills. And if you apply this to the field of sports, this sounds a lot like the stories we hear about Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Dirk Nowitzki, Ronaldo, Messi, Federer, Serena Williams, Steffi Graf or Martina Navratilova, right? These athletes who, despite already being at the top, continue to work harder than anyone else. But we still haven't answered why deliberate practice makes the difference. And to comprehend this, it helps to understand that deliberate practice is as much a performer's mental approach to perfecting their skills as it is a physical one. Ericsson found that deliberate practice increases the quantity and quality of an individual's mental representations. So what is a mental representation? A mental representation is your cognitive understanding of a concept, skill or task. So to make it easier to understand what it is, let's look at the word dog. So as a baby, when you've never heard the word dog before or seen one, you have no idea what it is, right? But then you see a photo or a picture of a dog and your parents tell you this is a dog. And this is the first step into how your mental representation of the word dog is formed. And then you see a dog on TV or you see one while you're outside taking a walk with your parents and you become aware that dogs don't just exist in the book. So initially, your mental representation of the word dog is nothing. And as you get more input and make experiences, your mental representation of the word dog changes and becomes more complex. You learn that a dog is not simply a word with three letters, but that a dog is a living being that exists in the real world. So your mental representation of the word dog has increased in quantity because you had more exposure, but your mental representation can also change in quality. For example, when you own a dog, because owning a dog gives you an even better understanding of what a dog is. So if you own a dog, your mental representation of a dog will be more detailed than someone who does not or has never owned a dog. Or you become a dog expert and your mental representations about a dog increase even more because you learn about their behavior and how to train them. You learn more about what makes a dog a dog. So the mental representation of dog is your cognitive understanding of the concept that increases in quantity and quality because of the mental experiences you make. So the same is true for skills. Mental representations develop when you learn how to drive a car, when you learn a language or when you start practicing a sport. 
The more you engage in it and the more you learn about it, the better your mental representations become. But for the average person, there comes a time when they have reached a point where they can comfortably perform a task. They can drive a car or speak a language reasonably well or are good enough at the sport they practice. And then they stop developing. And the reason why this happens is that the processes or skills necessary to perform the task well enough have become automated and no cognitive energy is spent on developing the skills further. This does not happen with expert performers. For expert performers, the processes never become fully automated. They always maintain cognitive control over their performance. And because they maintain cognitive control, they can pay attention to the little details that will make them better and better. And by doing so, continue to increase the quality and quantity of their mental representations. But why is it so important to have mental representations of the highest quality and quantity if you want to be the best in the field? The reason for it has something to do with your memory. Ericsson and his colleagues found that mental representations give an expert performer the ability to circumvent the limits of their short-term memory. Because usually the short-term memory is a person's working memory. So the working memory is a system that allows an individual to hold information and in the case of short-term memory being the working memory for a short amount of time while doing something like reading, listening or performing a task. The disadvantage of the short-term memory as a working memory is that there's a limit on how much we can process and remember at any given moment. And most of what goes into our short-term memory we tend to forget. So for information to be stored into our long-term memory we usually need repetition or repeated exposure. But the best performers among the experts have the ability to use their long-term memory as a working memory when engaged in a task. So why is it such an advantage to use your long-term memory as a working memory? As I said before, the short-term memory, which is usually a person's working memory, is limited. The same is not true for the long-term memory. There is no limit to its capacity and it stores information indefinitely. So what happens in the brains of expert performers, and this is actually quite interesting, via the mental representations that have increased in quantity and quality, through deliberate practice is that basically they can skip or turn off their short-term memory when they are participating in their discipline and directly feed information they are receiving into their long-term memory and even better they can also retrieve information from their long-term memory instantly and make use of it whenever they need it. So the best tennis players like Federer, Nadal and Djokovic they can recall past game situations plan future actions and evaluate their current performance while they are playing tennis. They can block out things that are not relevant for optimal performance but tune into something if it becomes relevant. They don't only have the ability to recognize these subtle details, they also then have the skills to make the necessary adjustments so they can perform better. It's almost like they see, hear or feel more than others. An expert tennis player might notice the wind just like a beginner does. But if it doesn't interfere with their performance, the experts can basically block it out completely. But at the moment it becomes relevant for their performance, they can analyze the situation and take the appropriate steps so the wind is factored into their play. 
This is something that non-experts cannot do and this is what makes the performance of experts superior to novices or well-trained performers. They notice the smallest things that could prevent them from performing optimally and they can make the necessary adjustments in the moment. But how was this possible? Ericsson found that the mental representations that these expert performers developed through thousands of hours of deliberate practice gave them the ability to use their long-term memory as a working memory. So Ericsson found out that the skill of experts to use their long-term memory as their working memory is domain-specific, so it was not transferable. That means that tennis players could only use their long-term memory as a working memory while they were playing tennis and in no other areas of their lives. And why? Well, because they only had the necessary mental representations in quantity and quality for playing tennis. Let me give you some more examples of the value of deliberate practice and mental representations. Ericsson found out that the ones who are exceptional at chess are not necessarily the ones who practice the most, as in played the most games, but the ones who practice the most, as in spend the most amount of time studying and analyzing the games of chess grandmasters and then on evaluating and planning their own moves mirroring what they had learned. The same is true for quarterbacks in American football. The best quarterbacks are those who review game film the longest and thoroughly study their opponents and any possible scenario that could happen during a game and think about how they would react in these circumstances. They analyze their options in each situation and prepare solutions in their minds. They deliberately practice and therefore form mental representations of the highest quantity and quality, which makes it possible for them to use their long-term memory as a working memory and its unlimited processing power. And then during a game, they can react spontaneously to new situations and outperform others. So football players like Messi or Ronaldo are not superhumans who have a sixth sense or a God-given talent to sense where their teammates and opponents are on the pitch or where to kick the ball, it just looks this way. What they actually have is superior mental representations that they have acquired through thousands of hours of deliberate practice and because of these superior mental representations they are able to play football on a different level. And because they were able to use their long-term memory as working memory, they were able to feed and store so much more information in their memory and then also retrieve it when necessary that other football players cannot keep up with them. The same is true for their decision-making. Especially Messi looks like a superhuman in this area. And in a way he is. He seems to make a split-second decision, when to pass or shoot the ball, and he's usually right. And the reason why he's so good at it again, is that through his superior mental representations acquired through thousands of hours of deliberate practice and by making use of the processing power of his long-term memory while playing football, he's able to access all previous matches or game situations and make decisions based on these experiences. Studies have shown that expert performers are not quicker at making decisions than the average person. They are just better at making the right decisions because they can tap into an almost unlimited reservoir of domain-specific experiences. And coming back to tennis, this is the reason why Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, if physically 100% fit, 
cannot yet be beaten by anyone else but each other. They are mentally superior to any other player currently on the tour. So if you have spent less time on perfecting your craft and have made less experiences, losing against these players is not surprising at all. And because Djokovic is physically in the best possible shape, it is very likely that he will continue to dominate in years to come, win Wimbledon, Olympic gold and the US Open. None of the youngsters will be able to reach his level anytime soon. Maybe someone will catch him off guard at one point, but even that is not very likely. And if Djokovic keeps improving his skill set, it will be impossible for someone else to catch up until he retires. Djokovic is also a very good example from a different perspective and what is necessary to stay at the top. He's not afraid of change to get better. For example, he seems to change coaches when he feels it is necessary so he can progress further. As a professional athlete, if you want to continue to be the best, at certain stages in your career, it might be necessary to seek out the help of other expert teachers who can help you to make your game even more complete. By the way, one indicator that athletes use their long-term memory as their working memory is something that you can notice if you pay close attention. You can often hear this in interviews or documentaries. These athletes seem to remember a particular situation in the game from the past in all its details, even years later. Walter Röhrl, one of the best rally drivers of all time, mentioned this in an interview when he joked about remembering the tiniest details about his races in the past. He could remember the layout of the roads, where there was a corner, how tight the corner was, or even the smallest objects when he drove from start to finish with 100 miles an hour. But now he remembers barely anything on his way to the bakery. That is the power of deliberate practice. Ericsson's research into expert performance and the scientific evidence of the past 30 years have shown that talent plays no role in expert performance. The correlation is that the expert performers who are better than other expert performers are the ones who will have spent more time on deliberate practice and continuously improving their skills. Understanding this has important implications for someone intending to reach a high level of excellence in their field. Yes, becoming very good at something has to do with practice, but as much with its quality than its quantity. Before I conclude this podcast, I want to make some important points. Especially in team sports, the next point is important. Deliberate practice does not happen when you perform or train together as a team. It only happens when you practice on your own with a coach who gives all their attention to you and the development of your skills and then you go away and practice on your own. Studies found that the more skilled teams in football spend a greater proportion of practice time on personal practice than less skilled teams. Or that national level players engage in more personal practice early in their careers than provincial players. Something that is also very important. Ericsson never said that deliberate practice is the only type of practice that improves performance and matters to become the best of the best. But it's the most important factor if you want to improve an objectively measurable skill. 
Of course, if you want to be the best in tennis, it is surely not enough to only know how to serve a ball well. You need to have so many different skills and be outstanding at them. For example, you need to be able to know mentally and physically when to attack, when to defend, how to read your opponent, how to be tactical, how to deal with a win, how to deal with a loss, how to deal with the media, how to eat well, how to recover, how to deal with an injury, and the list goes on. The more holistic an athlete views their sport and what enables them to become the best, and the more experts from other areas they work with, the more expertise they accumulate and the better they will become. Another important point to fully understand the limitations of deliberate practice is to be aware that intensity of practice is much more important than the duration. Why is this the case? Well, Ericsson found that deliberate practice is very taxing on the mind because you need to be fully concentrated and involved in a task and pay so much attention to the tiniest details. And studies have shown that the time you can spend on deliberate practice per day depends on your age and skill level. As a beginner, you can only engage in deliberate practice for maybe 15 to 20 minutes per day. Individuals with many years of training can reach up to five hours of deliberate practice per day. So if I wanted to draw a conclusion, it would sound something like this. So if you're already very good at something, doesn't matter if it's a sport or a language, and you want to get better, get yourself an expert teacher who has proven that their methods work, listen to them and do what they say. And then pour all your heart and soul into perfecting your skills and always believe that you can get better no matter how proficient you already are because that is the reality. And if you're a coach and you listen to this podcast, maybe take some time to dive a bit deeper into this topic or become familiar with the work of Bill Walsh who was one of the greatest head coaches in the NFL. Why Bill Walsh? Well, without knowing the scientific background to expert performance, he has made use of so many aspects and principles that the scientific research over the past 30 years has been able to unveil as effective in increasing performance. Unlike him, we now know why the measures he implemented in his coaching approach produced so many outstanding individuals and one of the greatest teams in NFL history. The same is true for Phil Jackson, but I will talk about this in the future podcasts. That's it from me today. I'm David from Passion to Excellence, your performance and well-being coaching and consultancy.